0: Hello, everybody. By this time, you already understand what this podcast is about. But as you may know, today, since it alternates, is going to be an episode from Heritage, which means it's going to suck. So let's just introduce him. Hello there. Uh, thanks. I guess is what no, I should say. No, no, no. You, no, you always suck. So apparently, though, you do have something for me. I have, some,
1: I have some. I have some. Some good. Some good stuff today.
0: You think it's going to be good? I think it's. I mean, unlike be good. The, unlike the last time you did one, because the last time you did one, apparently. Uh, some random guy could have visited America first and not Ericsson. So that's a big deal, though, right? That's a big What's deal. What's wrong though? Well, I mean, well, let's let's see. Depends yeah. what you value Let, in history. See. Is it like well, if it's like ninety percent
1: chance that is true, but then like it's really interesting. <laughs> that's good enough, right?
0: Maybe, maybe it depends. Maybe you can redeem yourself this time. Uh, what, what pressures what, what on? What are we learning?
1: Okay, so we're gonna be learning about napoleon and you're probably thinking well like napoleon that's not he's a, he's a, he's a huge he, deal he's, he's, he's a not, big he's deal right yeah he's huge. he's like one of those like a-list celebrities from he, he is not system. a small he's human like he's like julius caesar and then napoleon and hitler yeah it's yeah, like, like you, that
0: you would stick him on like the list of like influential people i reckon yeah. he'd be up there i yeah. think i'm not too sure i think caesar would be at the top for some reason though i feel like you know I don't know what he really does because I'm not interested in this stuff, but maybe you can enlighten me, you know? Oh, this
1: is not the day for Julius Caesar, though. Maybe some other time. But... Okay, fair enough. For Napoleon, we're going to be learning about his campaign in Egypt, mainly. The reason why I think it's a footnote is because I think a lot of... Well, a lot of people don't know almost any of the details. And the main time it actually comes up in, like, normal historical discussion or, like, general discussion is when people talk about the Rosetta Stone. What do you know about the rosetta stone
0: not a lot not gonna lie what do you know any details um i knew it was like created in like bc you know like Uh really really old right yeah and when they found it they found like well i don't know i think it's late 18th or maybe something around then you know and when they did find it they're like there's this massive rock right and it's got some, like, words on it. Oh, wait, they're Egyptian. And then after that, they eventually, over, like, long time, it's suddenly sort of like, oh, this is translation. It's a translation. We now know what they mean. I think.
1: We're kind of on the right line. So it was written. <laughs> it was, it was, written, it was <laughs> written in the Ptolemaic period of Egypt. So that's post I have no idea uh, that the Alexander the Great's conquest of Egypt, which is a great tie-in because we're going we're gonna to come back to that. Alexander the Great's conquest of Egypt. So right. the Greek ruler in Egypt, he made a speech and then some guy wrote it down in ancient Greek and Egyptian hieroglyphics side by side. Now, This is important because for the 2,000 years after the Alexander the Great's conquest, no one in Europe could read uh, hieroglyphics, but lots of people could read ancient Greek. And so when it was discovered by uh, the French administration in Egypt, they could translate the hieroglyphs because they had the ancient greek side by side and so that opened up to uh it basically that moment right the discovery of the rosetta stone began the academic discipline of egyptology
0: i thought hieroglyphics were just pretty little pictures though
1: yeah but you need to know what they mean
0: ah you got me there
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so um we're gonna move on for the first thing is why Number did Napoleon one. go to Egypt right so he's okay. so this point we're in the late very late uh, 18th century Napoleon is still not the ruler of France he's still just a general um, ah. in the army but he's led some massively successful campaigns in Italy and uh, in the around the border areas with Austrian empire
0: so uh, I assume with this then, since he's like a general, is this like him just trying to like prove himself by just like going up the next level, like screw it, I want Egypt as well now?
1: Kind of, in a way. He was, this was the time where he's thinking like, okay, I could do something big here, right? Ah. and a strategic reason he wanted to go was because he wanted to use Egypt to link up with French allies in India to coordinate an attack on the British. Remember, by by this time, the French had already been at war with the British since, I think, like, 1793 or something. I might be wrong on that date, but something like that. And so there was this guy in India called Tipu Sultan, right? He's in right. the kingdom of Mysore, which is a uh west indian kingdom he wanted to link up via egypt to basically uh attack uh, british possessions in india and the middle east generally right so this uh marks is important because it marks the beginning of places like the middle east becoming the battleground for european colonial rivalry right before this before this point, before the uh, Napoleonic expedition, the main battleground was in America, and a little bit in India, but mainly in America or the Americas, right? But I, also I guess,
0: f- I, I mean, I can see why Egypt, because right now I've decided to open up like Google Maps. I'm having a look at Egypt, yeah, yeah, and I can see how it can link, you know, Asia, Middle East, and everything. So I I I, I would say that surely it'd be like an important trading. I don't know. Do they? Yes. Do they do yes. That? Yeah, yeah. It would it was be for it? a trading rivalry as yeah. well.
1: Yeah. Uh. But also, more, some people will say that was was more compelling reason, was a personal reason, that Napoleon yeah. was obsessed with Alexander the Great. Like, absolutely obsessed with him. And he basically wanted to conquer Egypt because Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. And that's kind of why. Uh,
0: he just well, wanted to be like a good his reason.
1: hero. He wanted to be like his hero. Um, ah,
0: nah, nah. Now I get it. I yeah. get it, right? Because I know, right? And, like, right. modern history. Not really, like, related to this entirely. But I know, like... Um, Hitler, Like, he was all about, like, that gross Deutschland and the, the German before the German Empire. So I feel this is just, like, a trend or something that just keeps repeating, you know, like, oh, I need to be as good as the guy before me. Yeah. Well, this guy was huge. I need to be just as good as him.
1: I mean, basically, every emperor for a 100 years after Julius Caesar was like, I need to be as good as Julius Caesar, basically. Ah, mm. okay. Okay, so... Fair enough. In 1798, uh, Napoleon and his fleet set off from i believe it's toulouse and they before they head off to egypt they conquer malta because well gain some like mediterranean dominance you know yeah uh and yeah the the uh, knights of malta they offered some minimal resistance but napoleon took it pretty easily um but after arriving in alexandria which is the main coastal city of egypt um it's where the nile f- uh, flows into the Mediterranean. It becomes obvious that the Egyptians intended to resist. He had hoped that the Egyptians and uh, the Egyptian administration would offer, basically, uh, uh, minimal resistance, but no, they intended to resist properly. So in the 18th century, the Ottoman administration in Egypt was uh, kind of very limited. There was very limited actual ties to Constantinople. The rulers in Egypt in the 18th century were what are called Mamluks, which are a Muslim ruling class that had ruled Egypt by the time Napoleon comes in for over five centuries. Um, and this is the first uh, really, really important thing that I want to talk to you, talk to you about because it's going okay. to get into the main wider discussion point, And that's going to be about Napoleon and Islam. OK, so I'm just going to read out this paragraph. Right. That, he, okay, I'm that Napoleon addresses to the Muslim population after he lands in Egypt. Okay, People of Egypt, they have told you that I come to destroy your religion, but do not believe it. Tell them in reply that I come to restore your rights, punish the usurpers, and that I respect God, his prophet, and the Quran more than the Mamluks. Tell them that all men are equal before God, wisdom talents virtues are the only things to make one man different from another i ask you to tell the people that we are true friends of muslims wasn't it us who destroyed the knights of malta wasn't it us who destroyed the pope who used to say that he had a duty to make war on muslims wasn't it us who have at all times been friends to the great lord and enemies to his enemies so what are are some of your initial impressions on that
0: right okay i'm using my ib source analysis here right so, like, he focuses on religion, right? And, like, I, he, he always does that thing that, like, people do when they're invading, when they don't pretend to, like, I, I have a feeling, right? Not not general, like, not every invader does this, but, like, they just come in and they're like, no, no, I'm your savior, actually, you should support me. And then you get tons of people to join your side. I just find it interesting how he uses, like, religion to do that. Because I, I don't know. Just, I, because... Hmm.
1: It's, it is a bit strange, yeah, but actually, I, in the source, you have things that are not just about religion, So, thing about wisdom, talents, and virtues. That kind of shows how his kind of um, beliefs about meritocracy are coming through um, and things like that. But yeah, he's trying to make an appeal based on the fact that he's not explicitly saying that I am a Muslim or anything like that, but he's telling me that I'm going to be respectful and um, my people are not enemies to your religion. Um, hmm. And we're going to delve more into why he chose to take that approach. Before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about the Battle of the Nile and the Battle of the Pyramids, okay? which are actually uh, rare instances of historians giving things actually reasonably cool names. Uh, Battle of Nile, you know.
0: Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, Not that cool, but, hmm. I mean, battle. But okay, right. Where are they fighting on denial? Where is it? It's a battle. Battle of denial. Not. No, nah, but cool. the battle
1: of the pyramids, though. You kind of have like an a, if there was like a painting of it of like one guy at the top. Of like the pyramid. The guy on the top of the pyramid. They actually <laughs> they, uh, weren't fighting on the pyramid. I should make this clear. They were fighting near the pyramids.
0: So it wasn't. Were. So then that's just a misleading title.
1: Well, I, ah. I'll, I'll accept it if they were fighting within <laughs> five miles of the pyramids. I'll say it's acceptable. Fine. I've declared that is acceptable. Okay.
0: You, you declare yourself, yeah. that, so it's okay now. Yeah. You, because
1: okay. <laughs> so after Napoleon <laughs> takes Alexandria quite easily, you think
0: you think a lot. You think a lot about yourself. You're very full of yourself.
1: <laughs> he marches on Cairo, and then okay. his army uh, meets the Egyptian Mamluk ruler called Murad Bey. Bey is a Turkish title meaning chieftain, um, and Napoleon's tactics were just. Fantastic. They made the Mamluk cavalry charges ineffective. His military organization was just top stuff. And Napoleon reported 300 casualties compared to 3,000 to 6,000 Mamluk losses. You're joking. I'm not joking. That, that's nah, nah,
0: nah that's, that's, that's too big.
1: How is that too big?
0: That, that can't be possible to only lose 300 and then everyone else lose, lose 3,000 to nah, 6,000. That's like. 3,000's the lower estimate. Yeah, that's a lower estimate. That, that, that's a no. nah.
1: Nah, I mean, like. And this probably goes back to how a European or, like, a, a German or a Spanish or an Austrian might take note of this and being, hmm, if mm. we actually just, like, kind of get our stuff together, we could do some damage in, like, the Middle East or Asia. So, this is some so, serious so, damage. Yeah, so other people in, in Europe are starting to take note that maybe they're ready to expand their imperial conquest from America and shift it, you know, mm-hmm. back, back to the Afro-Eurasian continent. So, the Mamluks were not totally crushed, though, despite the numbers. So, Murad Bey and uh, some of the other leaders retreated to Upper Egypt, which is, which is kind of weird because Upper Egypt is actually south. You would think Upper is, like, what? north, but it's not. Upper Egypt is south. So they oh, that fled. doesn't make much sense. So, some fled because, like, the Nile flows from the south into the north, into the Mediterranean. Uh-huh. Something about it like that. Oh, okay. So, some retreated to Upper Egypt, some retreated to uh, Palestine or Ottoman Palestine, right? Okay, So that's the Battle of the Pyramids. The Battle of the Nile is perhaps, I would say, more famous, especially for um, British historians or historians interested in British history, because this is where um, British naval supremacy is established clearly and held out for the rest of the uh, French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So this guy, Horatio Nelson, I'm sure some of you will have heard of this. I've heard of, I've him, heard of him. You've heard of him, right? has been pursuing Napoleon's fleet across the Mediterranean, right? uh, Nelson, rather, was a really experienced officer, um, and he was able to gather many sources, and he figured out quite early on, and from quite limited sources, that Napoleon was heading to Egypt. Um, And uh, Nelson, rather, arrived in Alexandria one day before Napoleon did. But to avoid making the Mamluks suspicious that the British were up to something, he decided to sail away oh <laughs> and <Same. laughs> french the french general right there's not there's not going to be too many names i'm going to focus but i'm going to introduce one more new name french okay. general called brouets was the uh french leader that napoleon left to be in charge of the navy while he took the army to march on cairo right. right so bray's lacked confidence since there was a lack of food and water and the fleet was stationed at a bay called Abukir bay which was near alexandria and he He was very uncertain about this this is where um he basically predicted that if the british come down hard on them that the french won't be able to hold up and then the army will essentially be trapped in egypt and so nelson during uh the uh first contact made between the royal navy and the french navy nelson slips some royal navy ships through the french lines how does that even
0: work that just that just can't be possible
1: and then attacks from (laughs) both sides
0: um, I mean, that's an amazing tactician, but I can't imagine you just slipping another ship through all these because, ships. No, because,
1: because, like, the, a line of ships, right? You can't literally yeah. have one ship end and then the next ship begin, right? Because then to have, like, one mile, you would need, like, 200 ships or something. I don't know. I don't know how long a ship is. I'm going to be honest. But, like...
0: You don't, I don't know how there's long There's some a ship gap. Is. There's some gap, right? You okay. you can
1: slip some ships through, okay? And sure. during the battle, the main French ship called the Orient... I'm not going to mm-hmm. try and say it in like a French accent. The Orient, I'll just call that. Dramatically yeah. caught fire, and there's many paintings. I recommend that listeners look up some paintings and do some more research on the Battle of the Nile because it is really cool, especially, and if, and you like, especially if you like, especially if you like naval battles. I'm trying to stick really
0: cool. the painting in like a show note. I but ba- I but,
1: but basically, uh, Brue's didn't t- stand a chance, right? He was crushed horrifically. It was just an utter oh. obliteration oh by b- by Nelson. Um, And so Napoleon's army was now stuck in Egypt with no chance to get reinforcements from France. And so any realistic hope of them creating a supply line from France to Egypt and then India totally dashed. Um, And uh, another British success was that they got uh, through diplomatic efforts to get the Ottoman Empire to formally declare war on France because, as I said, Egypt was sort of quasi independent by this point. So the Ottomans were like, eh, I mean, I don't like the French, but like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? But the British was like, no, you got to declare one the France. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, sure. And then this is the point where Napoleon then launches preemptive attacks onto Palestine and Syria. And this, that kind of forms the more general oriental campaign for Napoleon. This sounds we're... like
0: a very brutal invasion already, like just a lot of war.
1: I mean, yeah, it was for, for that wow. time, especially the logist. And remember, this is the first time a European power has tried such a such a kind of ballsy daring. land grab. A right? daring ballsy land exactly. grab. Exactly. In somewhere far away, somewhere massive. Right. And so we're not going to get too much into the uh, Napoleon's Oriental campaign as a whole. Okay. We'll, we'll focus on Egypt because okay. we only have so much time. So, in terms of French administration, things like a scientific institute was established, things like a health service, and uh, an observatory, and as Napoleon was consolidating his position, the Muslim elites instigated a mass uprising called the Cairo Uprising, one of the examples of an unoriginal name, um, but it was swiftly crushed by Napoleon, and, but Napoleon was quick to grant amnesty to the, leader, to, to the leaders to hope that they would uh, not revolt again afterwards. Uh, and for the first time, actually, under French administration, the the Egyptians uh, set up, well, sorry, Napoleon set up govern, governing bodies with actual Egyptians on them, rather than just Mamluks. Hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: And so that was basically the first time that happened since Ottoman occupation. Um, and so during Napoleon, Napoleon actually didn't stay that long in Egypt, because his, again, his hopes were, like, more kind of broader in terms of the Middle East, but... He wrote a letter to a sheik in 1798 where he wrote, I hope I shall be able to unite all the wise and educated men of all the countries and establish a uniform regime based on the principles of the Quran, which alone are true and which alone can lead men to happiness. Now, that, that's that's quite a statement.
0: Whew. What do you think about that? Well... I'm, okay, right. So... He keeps expanding And he keeps going everywhere And he paints himself As this like Kind of guy That can like Because he says Establishing a uniform regime To me it just sounds like He's spreading like Civilization or something He actually sounds like Kind of a good guy Not going to lie And he also He also gave the um, The uh what was it Those people that did The revolt amnesty So I don't know He paints himself As a good man Napoleon
1: Yeah but Yeah like and, he, and stuff he's about, all about Leading about them to happiness The principles of the Quran Which alone
0: are true Ah uh, But Hmm I mean, sketchy, because I don't it's, think... It's hard Napo- to say, right? Think, because, yeah. Because, I mean, I talk, feel it, talk is cheap.
1: Talk is cheap, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel um, that's just propaganda.
0: I don't think that's actually, like, Napoleon. Mm. I don't know. It's and, tricky, because uh, wasn't Napoleon, like... He became, like, king of France and king of Italy and all that, and he, like, coronated inside, like, a church. Like, Notre Dame or whatever. I'm fair, I know that is true. Okay. Okay. Not... He was a so,
1: king. He was the emperor. Ah,
0: oh, the emperor. Oh, wow.
1: No, but uh, Napoleon's secretary, a guy called Bourion, wrote that um, Napoleon had basically no serious interest in Islam and any other religion beyond their political value. Which I'm I'm tempted to agree with, just because it just seems like that's probably
0: what uh, most that would likely make sense. that would
1: make more sense. Right he yeah, because
0: like yeah, just like take over and then use those propaganda and just say that you're going to ah oh, respect you, you'll be fine. Yeah that sort of approach, and I so think that would work best. Because I, I don't feel you could take control and be like, no, 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 your religion sucks. Yeah, You're going to exactly. put mine in. Exactly. That just caused more it uprising. It just wouldn't work. It will not work. Yeah, and then he's still expanding, isn't he? Yeah,
1: at this point, he's going into so Palestine. If, if, if he's still
0: expanding and going into Palestine and all that, and then after that, at the same time, he writes this letter saying, your religion sucks, and he's going to have two problems. Yeah. He's going to have some people be... uprising, and he's still going to be in Palestine. Mm-hmm. How's that going to help?
1: Yeah. Um. Boom. And so... <laughs> Burian writes that uh, Bonaparte's principles were to look upon religions as the work of men, but to respect them everywhere as a powerful engine of government. If Bonaparte spoke as a Muslim, it was merely in his character of a military and political chief in a Muslim country. To do so was essential to his success, to the safety of his army, and to his glory. In India, he would have been for Ali, at Tibet for the Dalai Lama, and in China for Confucius.
0: Ah, so he's... Uh, well, so that, that I, kind, I of, that 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 kind shows... of brings
1: it together what kind of Napoleon was up to, really. Um, but there are other interesting things they did in Egypt. For example, uh, there was a mass celebration in Egypt for Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, celebrated with military parades, and it was just, it was just a great party, massive street party in all of Egypt. Um, and people making the pilgrimage from Egypt to Mecca were given special protection. Um, and he did, as he mentioned in his own speech, he did overthrow papal authority in Rome during the Italian campaigns. So, like, does any of this stuff, does any of this stuff count as decent evidence that at least to some extent he respected um, Islam?
0: Well, the the, the sentence where so it's like the principle, the principles of the Quran, which alone are true, and which alone can lead men to happen, is this... I feel those evidence that you gave about, you know, protecting the important uh, pilgrimage, like Mecca and all that, I feel that just, uh, that, that shows, like, I, f- I feel that's decent enough evidence already. But again, you know, like, because earlier then, where, when you pointed that out to me, I was like, oh, this must all be talk, you know, mm. especially with also um, you know, his secretary being on like, oh, no, if he went to these different places, he'd be for, like, the Dalai Lama, you know. Yeah. I, at that point, I was like, oh, no, therefore, yeah. there. He, he he you know, he's just billy datting, you know, he's like, Oh yeah, I support your religion, it's fine. Yeah. But I'm actually But I, care. I think
1: there's there's a good case to be made that he didn't that his actual viewpoint was more in line with what most people agree, which is a kind of um, along the lines of the ideology of the French Revolution. But within that, he wasn't so extreme. He was a kind of like a revolutionary moderate. So he didn't believe that all religion was evil, like some of the extreme French revolutionaries, but he believed that it was, it could be a tool essentially for him to enforce his rule. Could, and so, so there's, yeah. no, there's no reason for him, for us to think that he, for example, would have had particular favor for Christianity over Islam. It's perfectly possible that he saw both as equally potentially useful to his to his rule essentially so i
0: feel like in the end this just shows that like napoleon like regardless of like the religion or whatever he just wanted control i I think that's just at the end of the day you know it's just like he just wants control and that's how he does it which to be fair actually (laughs) did work Mm.
1: well it well Well, if you want to be really technical it didn't because he eventually got kicked out of the middle east
0: oh well i didn't know that so (laughs) that's a real shame so maybe if you told me that i would (laughs) have known because so far now i like that so far now this is all i know okay yeah. so right now it sounds amazing you know there's muhammad's birthday celebrated military parades right now it sounds like a utopia mm. and you're just like oh no i got kicked out well yeah, thanks for telling out. me that you make me look like an idiot Yeah,
1: no, but to be <laughs> fair he got kicked out and then like a few years later he wants he wins one of the like greatest most important land battles in history the battle of austerlitz but so God, it wasn't it wasn't all bad for napoleon but it was,
0: um, it, was it was half decent yeah um <laughs> so
1: i want to talk to you about let's let's bring this to a more general thing right Hitler okay. and Mussolini and nice. Napoleon, what is going on with them in terms of their religious views? Talk to me.
0: Okay, right. Well, with, with all these with all these, like these religious views, here's the thing that right. So like with Mussolini right he he presents himself and he was called like the douche you know the, the one the leader you know and with hitler he was the fuhrer again also like the leader the og the og yeah yeah you know they they positioned themselves in these sort of like they they give themselves their own names they own like sort of like ranks of power i'm the fuhrer i'm the leader i'm the, like the one that will like guide us to greatness i feel like at that point then if you believe yourself like if you believe in yourself so much i think you're gonna like start believing yourself as like a god like this whole i think it's called like when Hitler, when there's that thing with Hitler, and like the cult of personality, yes. and also like if you look at Stalin's propaganda paintings, uh, there's propaganda of, like very especially late on. He there's a picture, there's a famous like propaganda where he is like the sun and stuff, and he's looking down uh, upon the Russian people like he is a god. So I feel like that stage then, the the your religious views they just become murky and they sort of. Uh, I don't say they become less important, but you you start to phase themselves out, and then if you're at that stage of power, you're just like, you know what? I'm I'm the powerful one here. Not there is no god above me. I am the all, mm. you know, the all powerful. At least that's yeah. what I think. That's what I would think was in that position. At least I don't know about them, but yeah, yeah it, it's, I, I, it's clear
1: that their religious views are highly malleable. That they're not good set word, in stone. Good word. <laughs> <laughs> that they. And they do, in a sense, make a religion out of their own myth of greatness. Um, because it's, it's fair to say that, like, by 1812, Napoleon was so convinced of his invincibility that he um, starts his disastrous campaign into Russia. He thinks he's like Alexander the Great. He's never going to lose a battle. Uh, um, and nah, if, 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 you genuinely, if you genuinely think that about yourself, that's something that you're invincible... Well, that doesn't work out. How can you at least have some a kind of Abrahamic religion where man is clearly set below the status of God and you're supposed to be humble and things like that, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so this is the point I brought up earlier about the shift of the center, the battleground of European imperial rivalry from the Americas to Africa and Asia. Uh, right. And so all of the major kind of events. So, like... The beginning of colonization in China, in Indochina, so that's Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, mm-hmm. in all of Africa. It's all after this, so.
0: So is this like the turning point.
1: This is this is the turning point in the sense because, um, a lot of people are starting to see, um, America as a lost cause for Europeans holding on. I mean, at this point, we've got the American Revolution is fully, uh, succeeded, and then oh. the Spain are just, are just holding on for dear life onto their Spanish colonies but a lot of people are beginning to think that maybe Europe is ready maybe the european powers have created a kind of a power gap between them and the powers in africa and the middle east that the power gap is sufficient that they can do some some explicit land grabbing because in the 16th century the power gap between the spanish conquistadors and the native population was so was sufficient that they could do that. The Spanish could just take it all in in I think about three or four decades, essentially. Um, but up to this point, Europeans were not sure if they had got to that point, because right. I mean, you could you get a lot of historians of like uh, Mesoamerican civilizations. They they will pr- probably be happy to admit that the that the main powers in like Egypt and the Middle East and even India were more powerful, more sophisticated, more technologically advanced than the Mesoamerican uh, civilizations. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I'm not really too sure on this whole shift of the European or, or like, the, the center of European imperial rivalry from Americas to Africa and Asia, because I, I don't really know enough. I I would happily admit that, because I have no clue. But um, I, I think it's just interesting to see, like, how... 'Cause for this, right, we're focusing on like the Battle of the Nile and stuff and how he's it's just interesting to think how all how so much of this was probably due to war. I'm not too sure. Was well, due to f- what, sorry? War, you know, battle. I, I just find it interesting to think of it in that way, how we're using war as a turning point as well.
1: Well, because it was a it was a demonstration of that if uh, the European powers put their mind to it and really got their stuff together that they could do they, it. They, they, can they do could do anything they wanted. Yeah, they were... because Oof. they they weren't really sure of their own power, right? Were was in they terms sure of like
0: anyone else's? Because I'm not too sure in that situation. Like. Were, were they aware that people in, like, other countries were not as good? Is that what helped them to, like, finally say, you know what? Let's just go and, like, take over all these countries. I mean, countries. they, had, they had mainly they...
1: established, like, trade relations. But I think it's also partly yeah. a, a population thing. Because so we're, we're still talking pre-industrial population. Ah. And to for a country like Belgium to conquer a country like the Congo, which is 78 times bigger, ah. you need to send a lot of people there. You just need to put people there, you know? If you don't have enough people, you can't do it. Ah, shame. Yeah uh and okay this is probably a question that you can perhaps tackle. give tackle right where tackle. should the rosetta stone be so the rosetta stone is currently in the british museum um after the british um kicked kicked france out or did they kick france? i'm not sure but after british control of egypt uh the rosetta stone was sent to the british museum and it's been there ever since and so the egyptians say That it should be back in Egypt. The British say, "Well, we're keeping it here for like protection, and so everyone can see it because everyone is welcome to come to London and look at the Rosetta Stone." I
0: I agree with that. I agree with that. Like it's it's nice to have it in like a British museum because then everyone can visit and everyone can look at it and appreciate it. However, though, yeah, uh, the somebody in Egypt, you know, like a leader of Egypt, will say that that that's an icon to Egyptian identity because it has their like first, I guess, like, sort of, like, language, all these hieroglyphs, like, their whole history just, like, imprinted on, like, translation. So, sure, uh, like, you, you could argue that it would belong in Egypt and... Uh, it's, it's tricky.
1: I'm, I'm tempted to say that as long as Egypt can guarantee that it stays it, safe, protection. that it's protected, and that people, uh, that outsiders, that Egyptologists have access to it, um... Then I'm I'm tempted to say that Egyptian do, Egypt does have a, a a fair claim that it should be there. But in do you think there's any argument for it uh, being in France?
0: Why? Because Napoleon did the whole takeover. Because
1: it was the French administration that discovered it.
0: Oh, Christ. There's you, so didn't much need, conflict you didn't think, of you didn't think about that, did you? There are t- I I I completely dismiss that thought. <laughs> you know what? You know what? We're in this new age of technology, and you know what that means? We can come up with digital Rosetta Stones. Just plonk, a, like, a fake Rosetta Stone everywhere, and keep the like because it's just so. Now much we people. should we should just three D print more Rosetta print. Stones. <laughs> Do a China and just three D print everything, and just write down like at the bottom, "Made in the UK," mm. and then just place that Rosetta Stone anywhere else because <laughs> it's just. It's just so many conflict of interest. I wouldn't see how. I, I think right now, where it is in, in the British Museum, is, uh, I mean it's it's nice because everyone can go and see it, and I think that like deserves some credit. But then mm. again, everyone has like a good stake to claim, you know. Like yeah. the French, I, I feel their claim to it. Like oh no, we found it. We deserve it. Like that's also fair. All right. it's, well, it's I'm tricky. I'm
1: tempted to say that, uh, m- the main claims are either british or egyptian but we'll let the uh listeners figure that one out for themselves yeah you
0: decide you you, you complain in like the review and then like give one star review oh i think i think there is a stone should be somewhere else someone like Tibet will be like oh no i think we should get it, it should who be... knows everyone's gonna be like oh no we deserve it yeah and just, i just give it a world tour <laughs> on that
1: and i think on that <laughs> note we will end the podcast yeah uh,
0: okay we'll end it on the fact that the rosetta stone should have a world tour 20 2018 yeah. world tour rosetta stone yeah. you've heard you it here right now exactly. it's gonna happen right thank you and goodbye